The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. It's lovely to be with you in Nashville this weekend. Uh, This is the first time Patricia and I have been in this region, and we have thoroughly enjoyed our time here. Thank you for the warmth of your uh, welcome and the way in which you have allowed us to uh, minister among you. Thanks to the leaders of Christ Presbyterian Church for welcoming me to the pulpit today. When Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 13, he calls on them to live God-honoring, Christ-like lives. And he makes that appeal in the context of explaining to them the importance of what he refers to as understanding the present time. They should waken up. They should realize what's going on. And they should begin to live in a way that is in accord with the times in which they are located. So, the call to holy living is made because of the urgency and because of the requirements of their situation. And if it was important to Paul's readers in Rome, then it's just as important to God's people today to understand the context in which they are called to live for Christ. We too need to understand the present time. And in describing the present time here in the West, uh, we've had to learn a new word. It's the word disembedded. In many places across the Western world, in the UK and in Europe, Christianity has become disembedded from our societies. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, There's no longer a sense of inevitability about Christianity. It doesn't have the wind in its sails anymore. It's no longer self-evident. And that's certainly the case in the country where I live. Uh, The Presbyterian Church in Ireland has faced extraordinary pressure to tone down or to change its teaching in certain key areas of Christian discipleship and morality. And in the wider society, the church is being pushed to the margins. 
traditional moral values are no longer socially acceptable. And the trend is that churches and individuals who refuse to liberalize their moral teaching will suffer the inevitable consequences when they make their convictions public. You may have heard of a, a well-known case brought against a Christian bakery in Belfast. It refused to decorate a cake with a message supporting same-sex marriage. I said cake, David, not cake. Uh, he'll probably uh, comment on that. Uh, it was eventually referred to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, and after a very protracted and complicated hearing, and apparently to everyone's astonishment, the judges unanimously ruled in favor of the bakery, concluding that the equal provision of goods and services could not require compelled speech. So, for now in Northern Ireland, those who continue to support traditional Christian teaching on sexuality cannot be forced to say otherwise. But the opposition that Christians face in the West cannot be compared to the suffering and the persecution of our brothers and sisters in many nations of the world. According to latest reports last year, 5,621 Christians were killed because of their faith. That's 15 a day. 89% of those deaths took place in Nigeria. More Christians are being killed in Nigeria than anywhere else in the world. Last year, over 2,000 churches were attacked or forcibly closed, half of that total in China. And I was surprised to read recently that the sharpest increase in persecution is in Latin America, a substantial rise in opposition in Mexico, Colombia, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And the question is this, what does this systematic and sustained persecution of Christianity in Africa and in the Middle East mean for the global church? How does the loss of Christianity's symbolic power, the erosion of its institutions, affect us here in the West? How can we make sense of these trends and of what we're experiencing? How do we understand the present time? Well, I believe the Bible gives us a very clear perspective on those questions, and we need to be able to explain what is going on in our world today. And a key part of that biblical perspective on our present time is found in Psalm 110. It's a psalm of praise and worship. The psalmist expresses his confidence that the Lord reigns, that in face of conflict and rebellion and wars, God is sovereign. And that means that the psalmist is content and confident. He's composed. He's calm. Whatever's happening around him. And in the context of global unrest, of wars, and of terrorism, in the context of a marginalized and a disembedded Christianity, we need the same assurance about the sovereignty and the plan of God. We need to know that the events and the trends in our world 
have not disrupted nor destroyed our trust in our gracious and sovereign Lord. The first verse of Psalm 110 is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. It's a wonderful example of prophetic vision. The psalmist is permitted to witness a scene in heaven and to report it to people on earth. It's as though he were transported forward by a thousand years so that he could observe and report the coronation of the Son of God. You remember Acts 1.9, the ascension of Jesus. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. What became of Jesus on the other side of that cloud? What actually happened when he disappeared from view? And in answering that question, the New Testament writers rely almost entirely on the account given by David a millennium earlier. Peter explains it on the day of Pentecost by quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. David tells us what it was like when Messiah first arrived in the heavenly assembly after his crucifixion and resurrection. The Lord spoke to his son as he returned from the earthly mission on which he had sent him. In recent days, Christ had heard the multitudes cry, crucify him, crucify him, away with this man. We have no king but Caesar. And cruel and violent jokes had been played on him, followed by raucous, mocking laughter. <clears throat> they had pierced his hands and his feet and his side. His forehead and face had run red with blood from the crown of thorns. What would the Father say? How would the Father respond? The Father who had filled Messiah's cup with the bitter dregs of torment and pain and suffering. We understand that Pilate and the Romans had only done to Jesus what God the Father had previously decided should happen. But what would he say now as they are reunited? And Jesus enters the heavenly throne room, and the seat of heavenly power shook with the anthem of the elders and the cherubim. Worthy is the Lamb, they sing to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. But above that thundering chorus of worship and celebration, the risen Savior hears the words of his Father. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. From what was the lowest position as the sin-bearer and as the scapegoat of his people, as the one who was despised and rejected by men, the one who had been bruised with divine justice, Jesus returned to the Father to be given a place of supreme dignity and honor. Christ is seated on the throne 
at the express wish and by the personal appointment of God the Father. You know how it is that some preachers and Bible teachers in the past have taught us that Jesus is really a figure to be pitied. They say that in coming to earth, he had hoped to be healed and installed as a king, and he offered his rule to the Jews, but they rejected him. And so now Christ is in exile in heaven. He has been driven off the earth by the hatred and the rebellion of humankind. But one day in the future, he will return to earth to take up the Jewish throne he had previously sought. And we have to say that such ideas of Jesus becoming king in some future era are quite unbiblical. Our Savior never intended that men should crown him king. Jesus had no intention of being made king by popular selection. In fact, he sought to stifle his growing popularity by instructing his disciples and those whom he healed not to tell anyone who he was. You remember on one occasion, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus knew that they intended to make him king, and he withdrew to a mountain by himself. Christ had in mind to receive a crown which no human mandate could give him. And so on the night before his betrayal, Jesus prayed, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And so it was, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus was taken up into the presence of his Father, there to have Yahweh place the diadem upon his head. And there he sat upon the throne, not a Jewish seat of power in Palestine, but the very throne of God in heaven. Paul says to the Philippians, God exalted him to the highest place. Peter says in Acts 2, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. David says in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, here's the point. It's not up to you or me or anyone else whether or not Jesus will be king. It was never a matter for human decision because God has settled the matter. He has placed on his throne the very one whom men rejected at Calvary. And that affects our preaching, it affects our evangelism, it affects our mission. We are not begging people to make Jesus king as if the matter were in doubt. Rather, we're calling on men and women and girls and boys to come to terms with the facts. Jesus Christ is Lord. He sits on the throne. He is the king of glory. And that's why it's imperative that sinners like us bow to him 
as Lord and King and Sovereign and Master, because no refusal and no resistance on our part can overthrow his regency. And when the Father invited the Son to sit at his right hand, we shouldn't think that that means Jesus is now resting or inactive. Jesus is not sitting and waiting for another hour or another day when he might reign. Rather, as when a judge takes his seat, the court is in session. The work of justice proceeds. When a king sits on his throne, he does so to attend to the affairs of state. And when Christ sat down at his Father's right hand, it was to manage everything in heaven and on earth, which has relevance to humanity. He sits to direct matters on earth, so as the gospel song says, it's absolutely true, he's got the whole world in his hands. And we shouldn't think of Jesus being seated on a separate throne next to the fathers. It's not two thrones side by side. Rather, Eastern rulers had thrones as wide as a sofa. Honored dignitaries may be invited to sit with the ruler on the throne. And so it is the case. There is but one throne in heaven, which Christ shares with his Father, sitting at his right hand in a position of power and glory and majesty and authority. Friends, this is the reality of the present time. This is the time in which we live. This is the basic truth, the basic fact that people must acknowledge. Jesus Christ is King and Lord. He rules over all, and we are waiting to see God making all his enemies a footstool for his feet. Now, there are many practical implications that arise from that understanding and that truth about Jesus. Let me mention just two. Firstly, with regard to our worship. The Pharisees were constantly putting loaded questions to Jesus. They were always hoping to catch him out, trying to discredit him, trying to accuse him of false teaching. And near the end of his ministry, Jesus turned the tables on them. He asked the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answered accurately, but inadequately. They said, the son of David. And then Jesus said and asked, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? You see the point Jesus is making? That David, the writer of Psalm 110, was one of the most venerable saints of the Old Testament period. He was the great king of Israel. He was the man of faith, the one who brought peace and prosperity to God's people. Yet when David spoke of Messiah to come, he didn't refer to him as my son or my descendant. The dignity of Jesus demanded more than that. With reverence and with awe, the great king of ancient Israel called Christ 
my Lord. From a human point of view, Jesus was a descendant of David. But Jesus was also the Son of God. So that even his human ancestors bowed down to worship him as Lord and King. The call of the gospel, the call that we herald in mission and evangelism, is a call to the peoples of this world to come and bow before Jesus in worship and in adoration. And within our churches, we should never become relaxed or flippant when, they, when we approach the Lord in worship. David realized that a commoner does not address the divine majesty with presumption or with impertinence. He is the master of the universe. He is the eternal Son of God, seated at the right hand of God, so that when John saw the exalted Christ in Patmos, he fell at his feet as though dead. And when Thomas realized that he was in the presence of the resurrected Christ, he cried, my Lord and my God. And when we catch just a glimpse of the heavenly splendor and the sovereign might of Jesus Christ, we can but imitate these saints. We worship him with deep reverence and with holy awe. It's true, it's amazing that he loves us and that we're personally related to him, but we're not pals and we're not chums. He is Lord and Master. We are servants and disciples. He is infinitely above us. His throne holds sway over us. So while our worship of Christ ought to be joyful and ought to be exuberant, it ought also to recognize that he is king and Lord and sovereign. And all that we do in worship must bring honor and glory to the one who sits upon the throne. Let me say another word about mission, because it's an important one as we reflect on the present time in which we live. Whilst we acknowledge the present triumphant reign of Christ, it's clear that we're living in a world where the enemies of Christ are flourishing, where they're openly defiant, where they are increasingly aggressive. Atheistic humanism is triumphant over vast regions of the West. Islam holds much of the East in its grip. Many of the fastest growing countries in the world have Islamic majorities. And even in those areas where the Christian church is numerically strong, it is demonstrably shallow and superficial in its understanding of divine truth. And the question arises, where is the territory of King Jesus? Where can we find his royal realm? It was a problem that John the Baptist had. He once asked if Jesus was the promised one or should they look for another? And even Pilate asked, are you a king? Because it was rather hard to see Christ's fear, his authority and his rule. And for that reason, some have concluded that the reign of Christ has not yet begun, it's all still future. 
And it's true, there is something mysterious about the reign of Christ. But verse 2 of Psalm 110 gives us the answer to our questions. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Understand that Hebrew sometimes uses an imperative to express a future event so certain to happen that it can be commanded. Rule or dominate among your enemies. Never before has there been a kingdom like this. Rulers and kings make borders and frontiers. They build walls. They man frontier posts. Enemies are pushed outside the boundaries of their kingdoms. Borders are defended. They are reinforced. But how strange. Messiah rules and reigns in the midst of his enemies, in the place where his opponents rage against him, with all their evil and malicious activity. There, right there, his kingdom is established. And as he rules, he's gathering a people together, an army of willing recruits who will fight in his colors. Verse 3 says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power or in your day of battle in holy garments. You see, Messiah has entered the camp of the enemy. And from among the ranks of the enemy, he has recruited his own forces. They will be like drops of dew at daybreak, full of freshness and vigor. They will come from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. And the reason why Christ has not immediately exterminated or annihilated his enemies is because countless of them must be enrolled in the army of the Son of God. The psalmist promises that a great host will voluntarily leave the satanic militia and will enlist in the regiments of Christ. They will come from the universities that are most skilled in arguing against the truth of Christ. They will emerge from those regions which are most opposed to the gospel. They have come from among the paramilitaries in Northern Ireland. We believe they will come from among the Taliban, from the ranks of Hamas and Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda. They'll come from the north and the south and the east and the west. They will emerge from under the sway of the mightiest satanic influences that are present in our world today in order to register with the saints of God in light the very chief of sinners, will become a soldier of Christ. Isn't that what happened to Saul of Tarsus? Filled with fanatical hatred, he headed to Damascus to persecute the Christians there, but suddenly, in an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, his heart and mind were transformed. He was made willing under the power of Christ. And soon he was preaching Christ in the synagogues. In the midst of his enemies, Jesus Christ is king. He takes men and women captive by his astonishing power, and he turns them into his willing subjects. When Paul and his friends subsequently came to Corinth, they had entered Sin City. 
Corinth had all the corruptions associated with power and idolatry and wealth and sex. The Jewish synagogue opposed the Christian missionaries. They became abusive. What could the apostles do at the headquarters of pagan vice? But God spoke to Paul. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I am with you. I have many people in this city. And as they witnessed and as they preached, they saw sinners repent and recruited into the army of Christ from the most unpromising of beginnings, in the most unlikely environment, God built his church. Sometimes in face of the disembedding of Christianity and the persecution of Christians, we make the mistake of thinking that our task is to build an enclave for ourselves, to form a kind of large, well-protected, holy huddle, and to remain insulated from the enemies of the gospel. That was never Christ's plan for his church. Believers are lights in the world, lights that are placed in the darkness. And that's why we seek close contact with the enemies of God's Son, so that through our witness, His power might seize some of them and win them over to His cause. But in doing that, we remember Paul's words, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. The church's weapons are spiritual, prayer, the preaching of the word, and the indwelling spirit. And using such power, we may demolish strongholds. Refusing such power, we will know no success. That's why I'm enthusiastic about our work in global ministry initiatives at Westminster Seminary. I believe it's so important and so strategic that in those areas of the world where the gospel is opposed most fiercely and most aggressively, we're seeking to train and support and strengthen the Reformed Church. Could anything be more important in the present time Anything more strategic than supporting the church in China, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, and in Latin America? Because currently, we're living behind enemy lines. We are in the midst of Christ's enemies. But we're not unduly phased. We're not disoriented by world events because we understand the present time. We realize the environment in which we minister and preach and witness and live. And we're not unaware of the plan and the program which is in operation. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus is reigning. And he will continue to reign until all his enemies become a footstool for his feet. The day will come, dear friends, when we will see Christ emerge clearly and plainly as the supreme and the only ruler of the universe. There will come a day 
when all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The day will come when it will be apparent that all his enemies have become a footstool for his feet. Let's pray. Father, we humble our hearts before Christ as our supreme Lord, our majestic King. And we ask, O Lord, that we may be drawn close again to him so that as we live in these difficult days in our world, we may remain confident in this great program and plan that Jesus Christ sits on the throne and he waits until all his enemies become a footstool for his feet. Keep us true, keep us humble, keep us looking to Christ, our blessed Redeemer, in whose name we pray.